On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. They're facing, their entrance is facing the other direction. So you can see that they're coming in from here. Renee Curtis Pratt is a beekeeper in LaBelle. We're standing near the Caloosahatchee River where she's showing me some of her family's beehives. Um, I'm going to light the smoker so it'll kind of calm them down. And then I will let, let you get closer to them. LaBelle is a tiny town on the river west of Lake Okeechobee and not far from the vast sugarcane fields above the Everglades. Long before sugar took over, this area was filled with citrus groves and beekeepers. It was the land of juice and honey. And what I do is I smoke, go smoke all the entrances, then I go and pop the top and I smoke them. And I can tell by looking at them, because I've done it so much, I can tell by looking at each hive if that's a good queen, if we need to requeen, if there's no honey in there, and then this one has a lot of honey, oh, there's something wrong here. You're listening to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network and supported by the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. In this final episode, we want to take a closer look at what the slow pace of restoration has cost us. The original plan could have given Florida a 20-year head start fighting climate change. It could have served as a model for the kind of environmental work we need to do all over the world to survive on a warmer planet. But climate politics interfered. This is really where the Everglades story starts with a guy named Hamilton Diston, the heir to a Pennsylvania steel mill fortune. Florida was still a young state and wanted to build an economy. Draining the swamp would turn the mucky marshes around Lake O into black gold. In 1881, Diston agreed to take on the job. In return, he was allowed to buy 4 million acres. At the time, the New York Times called it the largest purchase by a single buyer ever in the history of the world. Much has been done. Central and southern Florida is no longer nature's fool. The stooge for the impractical jokes of the elements. But the work isn't finished. In fact, it's just really begun. Distant dredged the canal to keep water from spilling out of the lake and flooding land. It also connected the Caloosahatchee River to Lake Okeechobee, creating a new route to the coast. Water, the natural resource. Beautiful, soothing, ambitious. The promise of a drained swamp launched Florida's first land rush. La Belle, the Belle of the River, was born. One essential ingredient for fixing the Everglades is land for storing and cleaning water. In LaBelle, we can see how and why Florida failed that promise again and again. After Distant cleared the way, cattle came first, then citrus groves, thriving in the rich sandy soil. It might have been the delicate beauty of orange blossoms that first attracted the industrious bee to settle in LaBelle. Pratt says the soil made the honey her grandfather produced taste even sweeter. 
something about the sand. He would always get a couple more cents a pound than a lot of beekeepers. And so um, he, he was always so proud of that. That helped make this part of Florida a bee haven. LaBelle is still a little slice of old Florida, in the old part of town where Pratt's grandfather opened the Harold P. Curtis Honey Company on Bridge Street, there are still houses with wide porches and metal roofs. Near the river, yards run together without fences, shaded by live oaks and saw palmettos. There's only about 5,000 full-time residents. Pratt grew up with her twin brother and two other brothers working the bees. Of all the brothers and boy cousins, Pratt was the only girl and the only one to carry on the family business in a town where toughness was rewarded. My dad fought a gorilla in his young days. On one of his, you know, whims, he's telling about the, <laughs> the gorilla fight. He fought a gorilla? He fought a gorilla at a state fair. He did. The gorilla came through town with the state fair, and anyone willing to fight it got $5. Because he had us twins, and, you know, times were tough back then, so he did it to make some extra money. And she said he did so well that first night, he went back a second night to earn another $5. We still have pictures of my dad. When he got through, his shirt was tore off of him. He's sitting there, and he had a cigarette. He smokes then. He had a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Pratt grew up between her house next to the honey store on LaBelle's Main Street and her grandfather's facing the river. This is my grandparents' house. We would race here. We would, you know, we would jump down there, and we'd swim in there, and there's gators everywhere. It didn't bother us. I wouldn't get in that river now to save my life. That's because polluted water from the lake, or runoff from the growing neighborhoods nearby, now flows down the river. Back in Episode 1, Miccosukee elder Michael Frank said his way of life had vanished after the Army Corps flooded the tree islands where his family lived. In a way, the same is happening for Pratt. Beekeeping around here is dying. There's not any groves here left um, to make any citrus honey out of. The groves where beekeepers kept hives to make their famous orange blossom honey got hit by citrus canker in the 1980s. Then came bee mites. Then came the final blow, development. When you're walking through the home, take note of the quartz kitchen counters, corner walking kitchen pantry. Subdivisions went up in place of the old groves and saw palmetto prairies. And people didn't want bee boxes near their houses. Thank you for stopping by and make yourself at home. Enjoy. After her father died and she needed to care for her mom, who had dementia, Pratt had to stop keeping bees. To be a beekeeper, you have to stay on your bees. And um, I would go out there and I loved it. I mean, that is where my heart and soul is, is taking care of bees. None of her kids wanted to go into the bee business, so she gave away the last of her hives to another beekeeper. I one day just decided that I can't keep doing this, and um, I called him and I said, do you want my bees? And I sold him my bees. I traded him for honey, actually. And I didn't tell my husband, I didn't tell my children, nobody. Um, for about six months. She's now selling honey in her store from other beekeepers with hives farther away. It's the first time in four generations 
in nearly 70 years that the Harold P. Curtis Honey Company isn't selling honey raised by a Curtis. Um, again, more population, more growth here, losing more locations. Uh, we made the salt palmetto, which we had made a lot of that around Immokalee and then around Lehigh Acres. It was mostly, I mean, over there was just miles and miles of, of salt palmettos. But then all these people started coming in and started building houses. Losing orchards and palmetto prairies to houses made it harder for Pratt to keep her bees. It also makes it harder to restore the Everglades. It's a lot easier to restore a field used to grow beans or sugarcane here and all along the borders of the Everglades. A gated community, not so much. They started not letting the water run freely through the Everglades. I don't care what you say or who says what, you destroy the environment and that's what happens. And that's the way it's been in Florida. The state started by draining the swamp to lure development. When it became clear the swamp was what kept Florida healthy, the state started trying to save it. But that effort was always in service to the development and tourism that drove the economy, not the Everglades. And not even a warming planet is changing that. Sanibel Island is up the coast from where the Everglades meets the Gulf of Mexico. Dredging the Caloosahatchee River connected the island to the Everglades' world of problems. Now, this is one of the places where the dirty water from the lake ends up. It's also where Hurricane Ian slammed into Florida in 2022 and destroyed Chauncey Goss's house. And the water came up here to just, a, just basically the porch. I met him at his parents' house, facing the water where he's been staying. And, you know, blew everything out underneath the house, but luckily there's nothing underneath the house, so it was... That's why you built a stilt house, right? Look at our neighbor's house. <laughs> what, so did that used to be a dock? Uh, yeah. yeah, that was supposed to be rebuilt in April, so we're a little behind. <laughs> it's like everything. <laughs> Goss is the chairman of the South Florida Water Management District, the Florida partner in Everglades Restoration. His father, Porter Goss, represented this area in Congress for 15 years and helped get the Comprehensive Restoration Plan passed in 2000. We're standing on his father's porch, overlooking a wildlife refuge. Yeah. So, so Rouse House, his, that got picked up because it was, it's actually been raised since the storm. But the, the storm pushed ashore a surge of water about 13 feet high that swept across the island. It completely lifted his neighbor's house off its foundation. But the, the water was up about three-quarters of the way up those windows, and, um, and they were in it, unfortunately. Wow. And this was the bay side, Yeah, right? this is Tarpon Bay. This is the um, entrance to... So that's actually the more protected side of the island. Goss says Sanibel after Ian was a disaster. The storm killed at least 156 people and caused over $100 billion in damage across the state. Over 5,300 houses were completely destroyed here, just in Lee County. Another 14,000 had major damage. We've come a long way. I don't know if you came after the hurricane, but it was, um, you just had these, these canyons of debris. Everything went to the curb. So you know, every ground floor house and then everything under a house. So just, it was just gross. And they, they cleared it all pretty quick, you know, within probably six months. But in that six-month period, it was, um, it was depressing. 
Just a month before our visit in September, storm surge from Hurricane Adelia flooded parts of the coast, even though the storm stayed hundreds of miles offshore. A line of seaweed and other ocean debris piled up under the Goss house. The rack line was up under the house, so it's, it's, a, it's waterfront. Things on Sanibel could have been much worse after Ian. Before he helped pass Everglades restoration, Goss's father was the island's first mayor. In the early 70s, appalled by Lee County's proposals for massive development on their sanctuary island, a majority of Sanibel citizens decided the best way to combat development was to become a city. This is from a documentary by WGCU, the local public television station. About two-thirds of the island is now protected. My father and his colleagues at the time uh, joined together and, and pushed really hard and said, this is what we, we think we want the island to look like. And the, more importantly, the, the electorate at the time and the residents of the island said, yeah, let's try this. Sanibel still has a thick wall of mangroves and dunes along most of its coastline. They can dramatically reduce powerful storm surges. Scientists are now trying to tally just how much the mangroves helped Sanibel during Ian. During Irma, researchers found mangroves saved the county more than a billion dollars in damage. The day we met, a smoky haze from wildfires in Canada blanketed the island. Climate change is expected to make both wildfires and hurricanes like Ian more intense. Warmer oceans can help powerful hurricanes become even more fierce in just a matter of hours. One study also found climate change added at least 10% more rain to the storm. So Sanibel seems like a case study for the dangers of climate change and the need to cut the fossil fuel emissions driving global warming. I was talking to my neighbor who's his mom grew up out here. He's been out here, I mean, he's 80-something, and his mom was a um, mullet fisherman, and he's followed suit. And he said to me, he goes, I've never seen high tides like this. I mean, he's been there 80 years. So, you know, it's, it, it's got his attention. But despite the consensus of most of the world's scientists, Goss doesn't think humans are to blame. The, the climate's changing. You know, whether we're doing it or not, I, I, I don't know it. Regardless of that, I'm not going to fix it myself, but what I am going to do is pay attention to what some of the impacts are. And what he pays attention to has huge consequences for the state. As chair of the Water Management District, he's a big player in the $23 billion plan to restore the Everglades. That plan could also help fight some of the biggest and potentially costliest threats as the planet warms. South Florida faces huge losses from future hurricane damage. Drinking water is already being threatened as sea rise contaminates aquifers. So I ask him why we shouldn't do something to try to stop climate change. To a point, I, I think that, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sold on the, on the cause and effect, but if there are you know, certain things you can do that don't shut your economy down that make sense, if, if sea level is rising, if climate is changing, you know, I've been asked, why are you doing all this stuff in the Everglades? It's not even going to be there. And I, I think that, I mean, that, that's a fair question, but I think that, it again, it gets back to that urgency question for us of if we do this and if we do this right and if we can get fresh water into the Everglades where it's supposed to be, it can actually hold off some of these things. And that's, that's you know, I, I do believe that. He says restoration work definitely should have happened faster, but he also thinks more credit should be given to the little pieces that have been done. To see photographs and maps showing changes in the Everglades, go to our website, brightlitplace.org.
I, don't, I mean, I don't think the core wants this to go on forever. I mean, everybody wants to get it done. It's just it's the, the core is, is very bureaucratic, and you know they're not in charge of their budget. And so it's you know some years you have money, some years you don't, and some years you're told to do something, and some years you're told not to do something. And it's just it's a tough way to build a highway or a house or a reservoir or you know restoration plan. So what I asked you when we spoke, what you thought of the pro the progress of restoration and the criticism that even now it's not happening fast enough and that the projects are you know, not the big dramatic kind that need to be done, that they're, they're kind of around the edges and still too piecemeal. Well, it goes back to what I was saying. is We get done what we can. So it's, it's the art of the possible. We're, we're doing what we can. Don't always look for the big, shiny object. Um, sometimes these smaller things are, are really exciting and can just give you a great outcome. The thing is, we haven't gotten a great outcome. Instead, Everglades restoration keeps getting more difficult as the climate changes and its borders keep getting squeezed by development. I'm not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. I'm just not. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. That's next. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. 96% of users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Save time with one click and go from editing drafts in hours to seconds. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions to help your team make their point and move faster. Make a bigger impact at work. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends, trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day. All in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. This message is brought to you by Wondery. In the climate-ravaged year of 2072, the city of Pura protects residents from global catastrophes. But a dark secret threatens Pura's very existence. Binge all episodes of The Last City ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Since he was elected, Governor Ron DeSantis has poured money into fending off growing impacts from climate change. He appointed the state's first resilience chief. In 2022, the state budget included nearly $300 million for fortifying flood control, hooking up septic tanks to sewer lines, raising roads and seawalls, and a lot of other resilient stuff to make it more comfortable for humans to live in Florida. These are the kinds of things that make the powerful real estate industry happy. But he refuses to say fossil fuels and human activity play a part in causing it. I'm not in the pews of the church of the global warming leftists. I'm just not. I'm a, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. That kind of spending on fixes without addressing the cause seems like throwing good money after bad. 
But this has been the playbook for the Republicans leading Florida for the last 20 years. Admit there are impacts, spend money on infrastructure like pumps and fortifying shorelines, but don't address or even acknowledge the root causes. Except for Charlie Crist, no Republican governor, including DeSantis, has been willing to deal with the reality of climate change. When Governor Jeb Bush was asked about climate change after Florida scientists held a press conference in 2001 to warn that the state was facing growing risk, he told the Orlando Sentinel it wasn't a top priority. When he was running for president in 2015, Bush, like Goss, said the science was still open for debate. The climate is changing. I don't think the science is clear of what percentage is man-made and which, what percentage is natural. I just don't. It's convoluted. And for the people to say the science has decided on this is just really arrogant, to be honest with you. It's this intellectual arrogance that now you can't have a conversation about it even. When Crist became governor after Bush, he insisted the state begin lowering emissions within a decade. When he signed a series of executive orders in 2007, he created a Climate Action Commission. Then Senator Rick Scott became governor and abolished the commission. He reportedly told staff not to use the term climate change. And as the science on climate change has gotten even clearer, DeSantis has dug in. The idea that, that, that we have the capacity to, uh, to change or to stop um, uh, uh, the, the climate, I mean, I'm just skeptical. We, we can't even build shovel-ready projects a lot of times. This was DeSantis in 2017 being interviewed at Embry-Riddle University in Daytona Beach. He was still in Congress and hadn't publicly announced plans to run for governor yet. The idea that you're not going to have use any fossil fuels anytime soon, it's just not uh, economically feasible. Three years later, he called any talk of curbing carbon pollution left-wing stuff. Well, uh, what I've found is people, when they start talking about things like global warming, they typically use that as a pretext to do a bunch of left-wing things that they would want to do anyways. And so we're not doing any left-wing stuff. What we're doing, though, is just re reacting to the fact that, um, okay, we're a flood-prone state, uh, we do have storms. A few months after he launched his presidential campaign in 2023, his Department of Education in Florida approved curriculum that aligns with his position on climate change. Recently, Anya's classmates have all been talking about climate change. This is from a video made by PragerU, the online university started by conservative talk show host Dennis Prager. Anya is finally recognizing the bitter irony. Poland's efforts to be more green had left them vulnerable to Russia's manipulations. In the video, a young Polish girl starts out fighting to stop climate change by cutting fossil fuels and comes to the same conclusion as DeSantis, that cutting fossil fuels to prevent climate change will cause an economic crisis. The story ends with Anya raising money to buy coal. And that, the narrator says, brings happiness back to her family and friends. Finally, things are happening in Anya's house. Nihao is spending time at home to help plan the coal deliveries. For DeSantis, climate change is another front in the culture war. It's left-wing stuff. So we want to start on this with uh, a show of hands. This is from the first Republican presidential debate this year, televised on Fox News. Do you believe in human behavior is causing 
climate change? Raise your hand if you do. Look, look we're not school children. Let's have the debate. As somebody that's handled disasters in Florida, you got to be activated. You've got to be there. You've got to be. Moderator there. Brett Baer asks if that's a yes. The Beck Ramaswamy cuts in. So, is that a yes or is that a yes? Is that a hand raise? You do not. I think it was a hand raise for him, and it's um, my hands are in my pockets. No, no, no. I didn't raise, raise a hand. Ramaswamy then calls climate change a hoax, which even DeSantis box at. But for the next four or so minutes, as other candidates debate climate change and energy policy, DeSantis remains silent. Supporting Everglades restoration had helped him win over conservationists during his 2018 campaign in Florida. But science has been a tricky thing for the governor. After he rejected climate science, he repeatedly attacked the science used by doctors and epidemiologists trying to get the COVID pandemic under control. That hasn't kept important Everglades advocates from sticking by him. All right, good afternoon. I am Anna Upton, CEO of the Everglades Trust. We are delighted to have you guys here with us, with uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. This is from an event hosted by the Everglades Trust in Fort Myers in 2022 to announce their endorsement of DeSantis for governor. The trust is a lobbying arm for the Everglades Foundation. DeSantis spent two minutes talking about restoration. And we're moving more water south than anyone could remember in the modern history of the state of Florida. We've raised the Tamiami Trail. I have the water management district working hard to do that. People in Florida Bay, the water... And the rest of the time, attacking COVID restrictions and talking up his own policies on keeping the state open despite mounting deaths. Can you imagine uh, if I had listened to the media and the left and Fauci and all these naysayers? This state would be in the toilet had we done that. We stood strong. DeSantis's office did not respond to requests for an interview. So how did 20 years of Republicans either denying climate change or sidestepping the causes hurt restoration? It wasted time. They're not taking projections into account. Right. They're looking back. That's to me, that's a scientifically, that's a catastrophic failure. Only looking in the past, even if you're just looking in the recent past, you're taking a big, big risk and you're not including the best available science. That's a big mistake. That's next. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Welcome back to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. In Episode 5, we mentioned that the architects of the original comprehensive plan did include a brief section on sea rise. They warned about flooding and saltwater intrusion. That's why more fresh water needed to flow through the Everglades. But as we now know, sea rise is happening faster than expected. And despite the rest of the world waking up to those increasing threats, Florida and the Army Corps stuck to the old game plan. Hello, everybody. Please have a seat. Barack Obama made his first visit to the Everglades as president in 2015. It's good to be back in Florida. Toward the end of his presidency. I can't think of a better way to spend Earth Day than in one of our nation's greatest national treasures, the Everglades. Obama was a little late shining a light on climate change, but now he was staking his claim by touting his administration's plans to impose a historic cap on carbon pollution. South Florida, you're getting your drinking water from this area. And it depends on this. Folks don't have time, we don't have time, you do not have time to deny the effects of climate change. Folks are already busy dealing with it. He warned that if we didn't deal with the warming planet, we were in danger of losing the Everglades for good. Recently, federal scientists had also warned that restoration plans didn't factor in the worst of climate change. These were the scientists ordered by Congress to provide regular progress reports on restoration. They said Everglades' plans should be revised with updated projections. Climate change meant we'd need to store and clean even more water. Those same scientists again called for a course correction and restoration in 2017. But the Water Management District Governing Board, appointed by Governor Rick Scott, was having none of it. Please stick to your knitting. This is from a recording by the Water Management District of former District Executive Director Pete Antonacci describing the back and forth between the district and the National Academy scientists. Don't need your policy judgments uh, on the way our engineering is working, on the way our planning is working. That's outside your lane. Antonacci, who died last year, said he was ordering district scientists not to cooperate with the group. Earlier this week, as you've seen, I've informed them that our staff is not going to participate. And I'll be perfectly candid with you. It's my strong recommendation that we be in the process of unraveling the arrangement that we have. The district didn't end up pulling out of the partnership that would have defied a congressional mandate. But they also haven't done an expansive mid-course correction on climate change. It's a recipe. It's a very complicated recipe. Ben Kurtman is showing me one of the models he uses at the University of Miami, where he teaches at the Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. Since we've talked so much about modeling in this podcast, I asked him to show me what one really looks like. Like, once you write in the code, is there something that you then, like, hit enter and suddenly you get a picture? So it, I just don't... No, no, it doesn't happen quite that way. But, well, there's, um, I call it the 
the Dante's Inferno of coding hell. As he scrolls down, screen after screen is mostly numbers and symbols. But this is, this is uh, a model that I've been working on for 30 years. And their, their models are so sophisticated now, they're, you know, millions of lines of code. Kurtman was one of the lead authors on the sobering 2014 climate assessment from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He specializes in more localized, shorter-range sea rise, rainfall, and temperature projections. He says these are critically important for places on the cutting edge of climate change, like South Florida. Everything we've built, our entire infrastructure, particularly here in South Florida, is on the notion that climate is stationary. It's not changing. But we know that's no longer true. And so you have to, you know, then you have to have a way of informing your built infrastructure that climate is changing as you're moving forward. And we we don't do that. We don't know how to do that. In 2016, he was working on the National Academy's report on restoration when he started talking to district scientists about climate change. He wanted to alert them to some surprising findings by one of his Ph.D. students. She'd been modeling future rainfall for South Florida and concluded that there's a chance that rainfall above Lake Okeechobee drops by as much as 10 percent by mid-century. That's where Everglades restoration is banking on getting water in the dry season. A 10 percent change doesn't sound like a lot, but they're really on the knife's edge. And so a small, you know, 10 percent change means, you know, the $30 billion they've invested in the restoration could be a failure. Kurtman says he and his student held a workshop with the district and scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey and a couple of other South Florida universities. The idea was to get the government to think more closely about how the shifts caused by climate change could affect work in the Everglades. It needs to be an evolutionary process. You can't just say, okay, the, you know, here's the projection you know, for the next 10 years, next 20 years, uh, come back in five years and ask us again. No, they need to ask us every six months. They need to have a way of getting these things updated as the understanding improves and things change. The district leadership was not interested in dealing with climate change effects in the Everglades. The Army Corps has factored in sea rise on recent projects on the coast. They're doing a separate long-term study to look at flood risk to people. The district gradually started working on resilience after their own scientists found that most of their coastal pumps would fail as sea levels rise. They hired a resilience chief, but that work has mostly focused on controlling flooding in urban areas, not making changes to help the Everglades survive with less rainfall. So what does that mean? Well, without being, you know, overly dramatic, I'm concerned that our adaptive management is not going to work. Adaptive management is what the Army Corps calls the strategy to revise plans as things change, like new science or the climate or the population as millions of people move to Florida. We're losing a lot of flexibility to respond things. So, you know, in the next two years, is, is the water going to become too saline for, for the ecosystem in the Everglades to survive? Kurtman says what worries him is how much faster things are changing than scientists anticipated. Look at the coral bleaching we saw. That just happened overnight almost. It feels like it just sort of turned on. And That's when ocean temperatures get so high, they stress coral and cause them to spit out the algae they need to survive. 
An ocean heat wave off Florida's coast is breaking records for water temperatures. Now, the El Nino weather pattern is partly to blame, but scientists say what's really supercharging the heat is climate change. That heat wave bleached about 90% of coral on reefs off Miami and the Keys. Those reefs, like mangroves, can help South Florida survive hurricanes. Coral also bleached in nurseries, where scientists are growing more resilient corals, specifically to survive in hotter temperatures. And we had some stuff in place that we thought was going to be able to be resilient, right? We had some attempts, but it's turning out it's not not so good after all. And so we need to be able to respond faster. And so the fact that this adaptive management is such a slow timescale, I think we're, we're losing out. We're losing our opportunity to really be adaptive. Kurtman's worried that without including better climate projections, like those shifting rainfall patterns and restoration work, an unexpected catastrophe could also hit the Everglades. So imagine, imagine if you only looked in the past Right? You would have never, ever considered the possibility that we could have gotten this warm. It would have never happened. It would be out, completely out of bounds. Right? It couldn't happen in the last 500,000 years if you made a statistical model of this. But I try to be optimistic that we have a, a chance here. I still think we, we still have a chance, but I think it's getting harder and harder. And he's not just talking about the Everglades. All over South Florida, as climate change worsens risk, Florida just keeps relying on its favorite industry, growth. In all these years, Florida has also failed to adequately address the polluters fouling up Lake Okeechobee, the headwaters for the Everglades. Instead, it keeps moving back a deadline to clean up the lake that was set decades ago. I met Steve Buczynski one morning before dawn to go bird watching on the lake's southern rim, not far from Renee Pratt's home in LaBelle. Buczynski is president of Everglades Audubon. As the sun comes up, the bugs and the birds come alive. Turns fly overhead. A blue-gray gnatcatcher starts calling. It's mornings like this where you can see the promise of restoration. The western edge of the lake is bounded by shallow marshes. Ecologist Thomas Lodge, who wrote the Everglades Handbook, the textbook widely used by both scientists and students, called Lake Okeechobee the hydrologic hub. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas put it more poetically. She said it was the liquid heart. Now it's a pretty broken heart. And time is running out to do something. Climate change has reset the clock. Across the planet, we've seen just how much natural systems like the Everglades matter, whether it's Arctic sea ice that helps regulate the planet's temperature, grasslands and forests that suck up carbon, or wetlands that clean drinking water and give floodwaters somewhere to go. The last time I visited the Miccosukee tribe, I stopped by tribal headquarters and met with the chairman, Talbert Cypress. Cypress is 41 and represents a new generation of tribal leadership. It's important for the outside to see that there are people here. It's not just, you know, some Indians that, you know, that barely exist anymore, right? It's actual people here. It's a community. 
our people made very hard sacrifices and very tough decisions to stay here, to be here. So I think it would be, you know, malpractice on our part to not do the same and to use every resource to try and protect this area. There's a real nation out here. real nation that has long understood that there's no survival without nature. That same day, I visited one of the tree islands where Michael Frank, the tribal elder, spent his childhood. Yeah, like right now, if a storm comes, this would be all in the water. But there's no storm. It's still muddy, though. He come here, what, a couple months ago, probably had about a foot of water on top of that island. I asked Frank yeah, if he thinks the Everglades will ever be fixed. Getting worse and worse every day. Not one time did you see uh, cattails over there. See the islands? Islands of cattails all over. I, told, I tell people, within 20, 10, 10 or 20 years, all this Everglades will be nothing but cattails because they're not going to stop. They're going to pump, still pollute the water into the Everglades. I told people when they built the Skyway Bridge, say goodbye to Everglades. Take your pictures now. This wraps up our final episode, but not the end of Everglades restoration. There are a lot of big projects now being planned, and some of those incorporate climate change. Whether the work speeds up and stays on track or repeats history and falls far behind remains to be seen. What is certain is without the Everglades, the South Florida we now know will vanish. You've been listening to Bright Lit Place, a WLRN news podcast distributed by the NPR Network. I'm Jenny Stiletovich. Bright Lit Place was reported by me and edited by Rowan Moore Garrity. Merritt Jacob is our sound engineer and composed our original music. Check out our website, brightlitplace.org, to see photography from Patrick Farrell and maps and data visualization from Laura Kurtzberg and Kai Wilson. WLRN's director of enterprise journalism, Jessica Bakeman, helped with editing and production. Special thanks to Vice President for News Sergio Bustos and the whole team at WLRN News. This podcast is part of the Pulitzer Center's nationwide Connected Coastlines reporting initiative. For more information, go to pulitzercenter.org slash connectedcoastlines. If you enjoyed Bright Lit Place and want to support more local journalism like it, please consider donating to WLRN. Hit the donate button at WLRN. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at Life Kit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. 
I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.